Alright, you white motherfuckers. All eyes on me. This is the Average Years Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. It is I, Mr. Fox, aka Take It or Leave It, aka John Ham's athletic supporter. We're back with another great episode of the I Refuse podcast. Wasn't going to leave you guys hanging too long. I figured, you know, I just got to get some personal stuff out of the way and I'll hit you back with something new. Everything's aligned perfectly. And this episode's coming later than usual, but I'm back. A couple of housekeeping items. Rest in peace to Irene Kara. Let me tell you, when I tell you, in every black household, before you get to Dream Girls, you have got to watch Sparkle, the movie from 1976, to fully get the experience. Like, I know a lot of you guys are a little bit more familiar with the remake with Jordan Sparks. But the 1976 version with Irene Cara, Lonette McKee, and rest in peace to Mary Alice is everything. Unfortunately, the vocals in the movie are not on the soundtrack. Aretha Franklin did the soundtrack. Love that for her. But Irene Cara, Sparkle, Fame, uh, Sister Sister, the TV movie based on Dr. Maya Angelou's book get into it she passed away cause of death is unknown another living legend like we're losing a lot of people at a really young age um irene Cara was only 63 i believe died in florida i'm gonna miss her dearly um moving on love and light to the icon the legend roberta flack uh, it was reported that not only does she have ALS, but it, it the ALS is preventing her from performing and recording and everything like that. Roberta Flack is in her 80s. There was a time a couple years ago where it was rumored or reported that she allegedly had a stroke. Um, like, if you can make it to your 80s, you are supreme. Uh, her and James Earl Jones and Harry Belafonte, who I believe is in his 90s, and Quincy Jones, who I believe is about to turn 90 in March. You have Tina Turner. Uh, she had a couple of mini strokes. Um, Quincy Jones had a history of allegedly cerebral hemorrhages and a couple of strokes. Uh, get into his Netflix documentary uh, directed and produced, I believe, by one of his daughters. Um, too short of a documentary. Should have been like eight or nine episodes, in my opinion, because you just can't capture everything in just one hour, hour and a half movie. Nevertheless, moving on. Why come you hoes didn't tell me that the icon, the underrated actor, Louise Guzman, is playing Gomez in the Netflix series Wednesday? You know, I was passing through my Netflix, saw, you know, Wednesday pop up in a little clip, and I'm like, I don't know. And then I started reading up that Tim Burton is behind it, which, lifelong stand. But to find that, find out that the Louise Guzman 
who I've been a fan of Ten Toes Down since before Boogie Nights. Oh, I hope he gets all the awards. And it's cute that Catherine Zeta-Jones plays the mother in the Wednesday miniseries or whatever you want to call it. So on to our main dish. You know, this is one of my favorite segments here over here at the I Refuse podcast. America, America has a problem. So there I was minding my African-American business, trying to make it to the weekend like I always do. When this came across my feed, and I was more than excited. So recently, Jennifer Harris was awarded a punitive settlement of $366 million last month from a lawsuit she filed against FedEx over racial discrimination. I love that for her. So... A couple years ago, this was at least two or three years in the making, Jennifer Harris, out of Texas, I believe, sued FedEx over her firing. She alleged the firing was in retaliation for complaining to HR about racial discrimination. A little background into Jennifer Harris, her credentials, her accolades. A rising star climbing the corporate ranks at FedEx from entry-level sales to leading her own team within 10 years. So within that 10-year window, she started as an entry-level executive in 2007, receiving six promotions, several awards, and relocations afterwards. By 2017, she became a district sales manager and began reporting to a managing director. Her performance in part was measured by team success at accomplishing annual revenue goals. By 2022, FedEx's fiscal revenue totaled $93.5 billion. I wonder how they were able to accomplish most of that. Hmm. In a March 2019 meeting about Harris's implementation of a new program designed to improve, improve each sales team's performance, she was asked to take a demotion to a role with non-leadership responsibilities. Over the next several months, she filed multiple reports of racial discrimination to human resources. In response, she received a letter complaining of her unacceptable performance, a written warning, and her termination in early 2020. In the letter, the reason for determination was cited due to revenue performance, despite her scores being greater than at least to one of her white counterparts. The key in her argument was the inference that race was the actual reason she was let go, and not performance because the company kept her white counterparts that had lower scores slash ratings compared to her ratings and scores. Supervisors suggested she take a demotion in March 2019. When she refused, the workplace turned retaliatory and discriminatory. For example... That's when the harassment and differences in treatment from people is apparent and escalates. In her record, Harris noticed she was singled out from her colleagues by not being allowed to attend company-provided programs that her peers attended, as well as other steps taken by her bosses as an effort to sabotage her performance. So, like I said earlier, she was awarded $366 million late last month by a jury in Houston. Of course, there are a couple of hurdles before she sees any money, any coin. 
Uh, first off, FedEx disagrees with the verdict. Of course they do. And plans to request a federal judge to throw out or reduce the award. They believe they followed the protocols for performance management with Ms. Harris and confident in their decision regarding her termination. Unfortunately, to the jury decision requirements, which is a unanimous vote, nuanced decision, the company wasn't punished for racial discrimination. However, they did find that FedEx retaliated against Ms. Harris for reporting discrimination allegations to human resources. With the settlement amount reached by examining the value of the FedEx subsidy where Harris worked, it reads like the settlement amount is just to push FedEx to reevaluate how HR and leadership are trained to identify red flags of dis- discrimination and retaliation and not ignore them. That's all well and good for principle, but let's keep it a buck. Legally, these companies aren't on the hook to change their process. As long as they pay out and people smile, they move on. It could be up to several years before Jennifer Harris sees a nine, and that's after the appeals process is, is exhausted. So here's my take, Mr. Fox's take here at the I Refuse podcast. Let this be a lesson to y'all that human resources is not your friend. They are not in your favor. A lot of y'all make friends with folks in human resources, have lunch with them at the little break room table, go on little trips to the supermarket, become friends outside of the office. Over the course of that time, y'all tell y'all personal business about your boyfriends, your husband, your kids. And of course, at some point, you dog your boss or you just get down and dirty. You start to get real, real comfortable with some of these folks in human resources. The lines get blurred. They could very easily turn most of what you've been complaining about into a formal complaint or unofficially pass that information along to other people in human resources like, you got to stop turning human resources into the counselor's office. Like, human resources, they're there to protect and gatekeep the interest of the company. Of course, they'll listen. Of course, they'll receive the information. Just like you know, a reasonable accommodation office you know, you go into the orientation, new employee orientation, and, you know, you have your rose-colored glasses on, and you're listening to everything that Human Resources is telling you. Like, when they go, when all these different offices go to employee orientation and present to you, they're trying to sell you with their services and be all pleasant and welcome you as best they can. But at the end of the day, Human Resources... Their job is to protect the interests of the company. I know a lot of y'all bought into the idea of human resources being your friend when you were in orientation, that you can go to them and file complaints about recourse or retaliation. However, the reality is that the resource or entity within the world, just because employees in its title doesn't mean they're 100% for you. You're just a body for these people you work for. I know which I speak of. Stick around for the end of the episode for story time. So moving on. America. 
America has a problem. Segments previously this season about protesting. So, out of Egypt, which is in Africa, for those of you that don't know a map, <laughs> Allah Abd al Fado. So, while y'all were asleep for most of this year, uh, this guy who is an Egyptian British blogger, software developer, and political activist recently ended his hunger strike earlier this month at Torah Prison located in Egypt. Hunger strike he started on April of this year in protest of solitary confinement and the conditions during his five-year imprisonment sentence, handed down December of last year. So, his political activism started through his Egyptian blog, Manala and Amrania. Bear with me, y'all. The first A-Rob blog of its kind to not restrict inclusion based on blog content. He supported initiatives that promote citizen journalism on social media. He has been detained, questioned, and arrested on several occasions starting as early as May 2006, which started while demonstrating for independent judiciary. From that arrest, he was released June of 2006. He was then arrested again October 30, 2011, for inciting violence at the October 9th Maspero clashes. From that arrest, he was rela- released on December 25th. He was then again arrested on March 26, 2013, for inciting aggression during a protest outside Muslim Brotherhood's headquarters, also known as the Mokadam clashes of March 2013. From that, he was acquitted on all charges. He was then arrested again two days later March 28, 2013, arrested and charged for torching former presidential candidate Ahmad Shaft's campaign headquarters the May prior. From that, he received a one-year suspended jail term. He was then again arrested on November 28, 2013. Arrested for rallying, inciting violence, resisting authorities, and violating anti-protest law, after a demonstration against military trials for civilians outside the Shore Council building two days prior. From that, he was released March of 2014 after 115 days in detention. On June, in June of 2014, he was sentenced in absentia to 15 years in prison and detained again, awaiting retrial. During that time, he went on a hunger strike from that, he was released on bail in his reach out September 15th of that year. So, since his most recent, well, at some point during this whole timeline, there have been numerous calls for ABDA and others imprisoned for ex- exercising free speech. From the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights to Amnesty International to thousands of protesters across Egypt whom have gathered in protest of his imprisonment. Throughout his journey behind prison walls, he has either recorded his experiences and or written letters to fellow Egyptian activists and other outlets claiming the SCAH has hijacked the revolution and detailing his 2011 experience at the time similar to his experience in the same jail five years before, writing, 
I have never expected to repeat the experience of five years ago. After a revolution that deposed the tyrant, I go back to his jails. Since his latest hunger strike this year, he has forgone books and opportunities to exercise, with a single demand to be visited by the UK consular staff. This hunger strike continued through the following month. He hadn't received any medical attention despite losing weight and becoming very weak. On May 18th of this year, 10 MPs and 17 members of the House of Lords urged the UK government to take action to help Allah Abd. That's A-L-A-A-A-B-D. In a letter to Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, they stated the activity was being held in inhumane conditions. The letter further went on to mention that the British Embassy has been requesting consular access to Allen, which was denied by Egyptian authorities. Lord Simon MacDonald, former permanent undersecretary of state for foreign affairs and head of the diplomatic service stated that due to the international law on multiple citizenship, Egypt does not have to recognize his British citizenship while he is in Egypt where he holds citizenship. I found that to be quite interesting. June 14th of this year, his current experience in hunger strike has raised awareness to other political thinkers and celebrities that have urged Liz Trust to secure his release via a letter calling on the UK to condemn his prolonged detention. The hunger strike continued on just water and rehydration salts. November 10th, which was a little over two weeks ago, Prison officials notified his family that he had received medical intervention with the knowledge of judicial authority, which is indicative of either being force-fed or an IV rehydration. November 15th, just five days later, his family received a letter from him stating that he's ended his hunger strike and he would explain later at a future visit. So here's my take. First off, what this man is doing, this is a protest. I put that in all caps. Not only because it is against rights and violation of freedoms, but also against a system or regime that is unfair and unjust in its power. It's worthwhile to know how of all the people that have been part of the very same protest that he has been a part of, that he is the one held for an extended amount of time or sentenced to the most amount of time. And also, what kind of charge is inside violence? It's clear to me that he's being targeted by being singled out as a means to make an example out of him against others over exercising freedom of protest and freedom of speech. Like, look at what happens, y'all, when you exercise your rights and liberties against us. Despite no support from the very consulate and government that has long-standing relations with Egypt dating back to the late 19th century, Abda, a British citizen via his mother being British, has been denied support from the UK, which I believe has the authority and connection to intervene on a civil and human rights matter. However, given the loophole that they don't have to, it has to make you wonder is the history of UK's relationship with Egypt one for posturing and vanity only? You know how these political heads make visits to other countries, have the talks behind closed doors, 
pose and shake hands for photos and head back home. In the history slash timeline of UK-Egypt relations, it's one of cultural, economic, and diplomatic in nature. From defense, trade, and education, and specific support to the Suez Canal, yet somehow they are not on the hook to provide civil and human rights support when activist freedoms and rights are grossly being violated. In this activist's experiences, I noticed that there was an experience where he was held for a very extended amount of time without just. Similar to a story of Khalif Browder, who was held in Rikers Island for three years without a trial from 2010 to 2013 for allegedly stealing a backpack. During that time, he was placed in solitary confinement for 700 days. Two years after his release, Khalif hung himself at his parents' home. Mind you, that was not his first suicide attempt. I just find it interesting how, in international relations, how some countries don't take issue with providing money and relief for humanitarian efforts and funding wars and providing arms, yet they don't keep that same energy for human and civil rights violations. Now, while I'm sure the UK African government power structure may vastly different, compared to ours over here, democratic versus authoritarian and or dictatorship, I'm just theorizing here. This is one of those stories that reminds us that the more things change, the more they stay the same. That we are not that far removed from freedoms being taken away, and that while we are over here trying to keep other immigrants out of the country or jailing other undocumented immigrants here, that's far worse over in other countries between governments and their own citizens. It makes me wonder, whenever the opposing party escalates their pushback, what are they resisting or defending? Is there something that Egypt and the UK doesn't want the rest of the world to know about what's happening in their countries, about the folks that they appoint? Now, if you've been paying attention to history world history specifically you know it goes far deeper than the little bit that the news wants to tell you and i've said on the Irish Hughes podcast many times before that the news is paid to tell you what they want to tell you and it's not the whole thing and there it's given or presented at a slant for many years over here we've been fed stories about the Middle East, about North Africans, about Egyptians, and the slant has always been extremist in nature and very violent. Like, they don't report on civil or human rights. It's just all about violence, 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 and bloodshed and deaths. And, you know, it's obtuse in nature so for this story to come out and not get any coverage on any of the news over here that's very telling but also it's like it's something about the government structure like I think if we want to get it like we're we're to some degree we're aware of japan and china's government structure like they're a trip but 
when you start digging into the history and the environment of the culture of government power in some of these other countries, you'll find that it is very, what's the word? It's very, uh, it's very strong arm in nature that, and you know, a lot of these citizens don't have asylum or protections. Um, when you think about it, like how you can be caned to death for not covering your face in some countries. If you're in another country from the USA, I mean, we've been talking about Brittany Griner. Like, that's that's a really good example of how the consequence is greater than the offense. Like, they can just hold you. Without a trial, without consult, they can just hold you. But here you have an activist who has been reporting, who has been pounding the pavement, pushing back on the abuse by his government, pushing back on the abuse of power by his government. And he held his feet to the fire, continues to protest arrest after arrest after arrest and he's and to his defense it's nonviolent for him now mind you he has no control over over other protesters which is why i found it strange that out of all the people he was charged with inciting aggression and inciting violence like how coincidental is that? Like, here you have a well-known activist. And these, when you have a presence and when you have people behind you, there is a certain amount of power that can be seen as threatening by the government. I was reading this guy's story. I was reading the timeline. I was like, this brings to mind very much Martin Luther King. Junior, where it was just like nonviolent, nonviolent, um, and the more influential, the more impactful, and the more charming and positive that you are, you get people behind you. And if you've been into history, like I say, American world history, especially Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, like, at that time, I mean, all time, that's sign common if you think about it, but at that particular time, you've got a target on your back. Your phones are being tapped, not only in your home, but wherever you stay. Like, the government is reaching for straws to try to find something to nail you to the cross about. Inside the government. And when I say that, I say Jagger Hoover. Of all people. Like, 
considering what we all have come to find out about him, his private life, like this dude was definitely compensating, overcompensating for his own secrets. And it's it's interesting because it's like you of all people with all the shit in your closet, you you cutting up as the FBI director, like him trying to nail Martin Luther King Jr. He couldn't find anything else. Like, not even a misdemeanor. Like, Martin Luther King Jr. stealing or looting or anything. So he tried to, J. Edgar Hoover, to get Martin Luther King Jr. on taps of him allegedly having affairs. At first, Lyndon B. Johnson was... Amused, entertained, listening to the taps. But he reminded Jack Hoover that we are not going to proceed further with these recordings. You know, we have the Civil Rights Bill that's currently on the pedestal within the House, within the Senate, within the Capitol. Yeah, we just can't have that right now. And, you know, to Lyndon B. Johnson's defense, this is another thing. Y'all really need to look into your American government, read into your history. Like, presidents, and this is, this is after JFK had been assassinated. Lyndon B. Johnson was the president at that time. Like, you go from interim to, I guess, officially being the president. He wasn't in there that long because I think he died in sixty the late 60s, not, he wasn't in there long. But Lyndon B. Johnson, like many other presidents, had to appeal to both sides. And, you know, at that time, civil rights was becoming a major force. And wanting to end racism, wanting to end segregation, that was the hot-button item in large part due to Martin Luther King Jr.'s efforts. So, civil rights in the 1960s, the act, the bills, more important than U.J. Edgar Hoover trying to nail Martin Luther King Jr., probably the most powerful black man in the nation at that time, for alleged adultery. First of all, you can't even, that's not even admissible. Wiretaps, and you can't even prove that that's actually him. There's some woman moaning. Oh, and don't, and don't for one second believe that the government didn't try to like set people up back in the day. They're a little tighter now, for better or worse. But back then, oh, there was. There was nothing keeping them from doing a whole lot of the shit that they tried to do, which is probably why we have more laws and shit and more limitations on like tenure and reach and all that other shit. Just saying. So moving on to the power segment, you know, the activist was the respect segment. 
Mrs. Harris was the money segment, and I really hope she gets every bit of $366 million. Even if it was just uh, a settlement to like prove a point, like she deserves most of that money. America, America has a problem. So, if you have been living around this past week, y'all probably have heard about this story of, of Austin Edwards, um, a guy out of Virginia that was communicating with a teenager through the internet, catfished her, allegedly, drove from his place in Virginia to Riverdale, California to kidnap the girl, but not before killing both her grandparents and her mother before the abduction and setting the house on fire. So, through the online communication, he was able to get her address. He parked his vehicle in a neighbor's driveway and walked to the teen's home. Calls to the Riverside Police started with a welfare check. Request on the young female who appeared distressed while getting into a red car with a man. While officers were responding to that call, dispatchers continued to get calls about a fire in progress in the same neighborhood, a few houses away from their first welfare call. By the time the bodies were found, either near or in the burning house, Austin was already on the road with the teenage girl going through San Bernardino County, upon which the sheriff's deputies intercepted them. After a shootout with the police, Austin was declared dead on the scene after being shot by deputies. So here's my take. What's even more a trip, that initial reports, you know, stories, articles, blah, 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 failed to mention that this guy was a former police officer and that he resigned from the police department before he went cross-country to abduct this teenage girl. The shit is sad all around for the teenager. Not only will she be, be traumatized by the whole ordeal, she lost her family because of this guy. I'm curious to know how hands-off her people were because ain't no way in this house. Like, I know that when, you know, prior to the pandemic, I don't know how it is in y'all state, wherever y'all live, but over here on the East Coast, um, especially in Maryland, we have uh, electronic signs on the interstate. And without fail, I want to say every week on these electronic signs, there was an Amber Alert. Either an Amber Alert or uh, license plate auto information just to be on the lookout, right? Amber Alerts all the fucking time. So, after the pandemic started, those started to fall back. Like, it was less and less of those on the electronic signs. It was less and less of those on the phone. Oh, if you had an iPhone, like, you would get this loud buzzing noise coming out of your phone. And you'll get this badge notification. And, like, it was, you would have thought the world was ending about Amber Alert, Amber Alert, Amber Alert. I was like, this is crazy. And there was no way to get out of it. But... 
when the pandemic started, it was like, okay, people are home. People are watching their kids. Like, there's literally no excuse. No tea, no shade. So, you have that, and then you have this long-standing history in the country where involving kids, teenagers, with social media accounts, and, you know, on the online chat rooms when they're gaming or streaming or, you know, whatever. And you have... Me coming up in the Brian Hansen, the Catch a Predator era of investigative journalism, like it got, it got to such a point that they were doing like episodes about this, and these were real people. Like sting operations played out in your living room, and I was like, you know, with all the the leeway and all the progress we've made in trying to best protect children from online predators. It made me wonder like how present were these people in this girl's life and was, you know, there were conflicting reports as to, how this guy got the address information. You know, there were some reports that said, oh, well, he he must have got it somehow or she gave it to him, which in my mind doesn't matter because look at what the fuck happened. But above that, it was just like, dude, you had to really be, really be sick. Down really bad mentally, emotionally, to drive from Virginia to California. And I, and please believe, like, I believe it to be premeditated. Because you didn't even park right in front of the house. You parked in the neighbor's driveway. But, wow. And... You know, he had a shootout with the police and he got killed. And I saw his picture and I was like, this, this looks very appropriate. Like, you look like the kind of guy that would do some, some shit like this. And it's unfortunate because it's like, he'll never see justice. And this girl may have to go to therapy. Because of a fucking nut, a nut job. It's very scary because it's like you're a parent, a grandparent, aunt, uncle, cousin living in a house and you get a knock at the door or a ring of the doorbell. You open it and then shit just goes left. <sighs> like we are down real bad as a society. It like people are getting more extreme in their measures. People are just really desperate. I saw a person getting robbed of their Rolex in LA in broad daylight. Like people are getting bolder and bolder by the day. And people are losing their lives. People are just 
I just I just don't get it. Uh, this is this is really really sad. Um, my heart goes out to the little girl. Um, I hope she finds and gets some healing and some some progress and positive progress in her life, because that's that's going to damage her for a long time. Before I get out of here, uh, so come outside, Rocky, uh, the husband of Latasha Scott, who uh, continues to fuck up the thing. Um, Latasha Scott is a member of Escape, and her husband, Rocky, is her manager. I reported during the previous episode, What About Your Friends, about that whole drama she need to really focus on this uh side baby alleged side baby that her husband is about to have with this woman who in the midst of this escape drama decided to share with the world not only who she was and some brief particulars about her relationship with Rocky that was, I guess, a secret. Not a secret anymore. But also, a picture of the sonogram of the baby she is carrying. That she's going to name, I shit you not, Timeless Love Bivens. Bitch, I'm screaming. Um... These side hoes are getting really, really in your face. No shame about it. You know, the statement that the group gave about Latasha not being a part of this, the tour and all that stuff is because she's booked and busy trying to start her solo career. In her late 40s, early 50s. I don't know what kind of music she's going to make, but I can tell you, given the shelf life of R&B and the history that other singers from other R&B groups from yesteryear have tried, that she's probably going to do gospel. Which, for the longest time, gospel music has been a sardine can and nobody's looking for that like escape works best with all four members and looking back and i'm telling people to this day your husband is the issue rocky is the issue like looking back on her time in r&b divas yeah and like stories Involving him and this promoter that has put this tour on for the girls. There was some kind of disagreement. And the even though she said the reason why she was stepping away from the tour is because allegedly the promoter threatened her husband's life. There was some talk that during that whole back and forth between the promoter and her husband. That her husband allegedly pulled a gun on the guy. Like I, I'm all down for loyalty. Like. You wanted to go with a different promoter, not this guy that allegedly threatened your husband's life. 
But, miss, like, you pull this this act while things are really going good for you. And this is your main source of income because you haven't done shit else the last 20 years. Um, and you know it's bad when your sister sides with the other members of the group. And it's not like she she gets it. It's like the money's good. Everybody's checking for us. And it's unfortunate because it's like it looks very much more clear now that Candy was being used as leverage. Like they were able to get a reality show and get the spotlight on the group. By leveraging Candies, who's from the Real Housewives of Atlanta, her connections with Bravo and her name to get things going. And now that things is going even better for you guys, you fucking up the thing again. It's the arrogance for me. So I know I, I promised you guys story time to tie my connection to Mrs. Harris's discrimination suit against FedEx. Uh so I had a similar situation. Um you know it it definitely ties into performance given the environment and the climate in the military. So I was in the military, the the United States Air Force for about four years and maybe not even my first year in, I was working at my first duty station in my career, doing pretty good. Um, I was in my office and one morning or one afternoon, the commander came by to, he was looking for the superintendent, was just peeking into the doors. Uh, we told him he wasn't around and he was just about to walk down the hallway, but came back when to, I guess, ask me something. So he, he asked me to come to him in front of my office, and he was facing me. And he's, he did, like, a, a glance over. Now, mind you... You know, we wear BDUs to the office, you know, fatigues or whatever. Had my fatigues on, had on a black shirt underneath my my jacket or my button-up top. So he's doing a glance over, back to front, all this other stuff. And he gets to the front, and he's... Check, you know, checking me up and down uh, at the front. At some point, he decides he wants to, in front of other people in my office, unbutton my jacket completely, um, pull it completely open dramatically, um, un undoes my belt buckle completely, and reprimands me in front of the whole entire office and then walks out and I'm standing there like what the fuck just happened so at some point after that 
again, going back to my point about orientation, you know, during employee orientation, one of the presentations is from the Military Equal Opportunity Office, which is basically, it functions almost like a union in a way. Um, it's separate from human resources, but they they deal with complaints, they say anonymously, um, but looking back, I feel like, again, with my human resources example, that they ultimately are in the best interest of the Air Force. So I was like, hmm, let me go consult. Because I feel like that was a violation of some kind. So I went over there. I went straight over there, not even days later. And I did what's like a consult. I ran the story by the guy that worked in the office. And I just asked him a couple of questions. And long story short, I was... Persuaded out of it. Like, he gave me the idea that, you know, sometimes what will happen is after a person files a complaint over a course of time, they become like the black sheep of the office. Or, you know, things can start to change. And I thought in the back of my mind, like, if it's supposed to be anonymous why would that be the case and given my position i don't think i even had a stripe yet as an enlisted airman going up against a major uh who was a complete shitbag um what they don't tell you in the military is there is a difference in ego and attitude with officers that go through, like, OTS, you know, go through community college versus officers that were previously enlisted. Like, it's apples and oranges. It's night and day. It's crazy. Uh, so I decided not to do anything about it, and it ended up going to a much, much better opportunities. But it's, like, one of those things where it's, like, you... What a lot of people don't understand in this point in the 21st century is, you know, discrimination and prejudice and racism is nuanced. And I stand 10 toes down with that statement. And it shows up in differences and experience, right? Like, here you have my situation where I was specifically targeted. At no point during my time in that particular environment have had I seen or heard of any of my white counterparts facing those kind of experiences like nobody else is being targeted um, for anything yet me and a couple of the other uh, of my black counterparts are being pulled into the office you know on the receiving end of, you know, a group panel, informal, they say, you know, it was just, they were looking for something to nail us to the cross about. 
And of course, there was nothing there. Like, the performance is great. The dedication is good. The loyalty is good. Yet, you decide you want to do this publicly. And just like Miss Harris, it was like, and just like this activist, it was, we are targeted to serve as an example to other minorities. That this is what will happen to you if you don't fall in line. Because I just did it in front of you. I just made an example of another black person or another person of color in front of you. And for us, it's like, even though I know purposefully white people do the most when they have an audience, we have been conditioned by society to not react we we don't want to confirm any biases that we're angry that we're aggressive like we don't want to play into the stereotype even though we know any reaction or no reaction doesn't change the bias and the prejudice is already there but people definitely move different afterwards. I can speak on that too. So it's not it's not new. You know, the workaround when it comes to prejudice and bias and segregation on a nuanced level is as long as they don't say the N-word, as long as they don't say it. And just show you. It, it's cool. Like the abuse of power. Is just out of this world. This is Mr. Fox. The I Refuse Podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe. Wherever you see us. Don't forget that there's. This podcast. The I Refuse Podcast. There's also the I Refuse Podcast. After Dark which I'm still working on. I mean, there are a couple of episodes, but still trying to keep things fresh and new. And also, don't forget the other podcast I have with one of my best friends called The Usual Suspects. It's with Mr. Fox and the Abstract Sagittarius. We have about four or five episodes over there. Get into those. And we will catch you guys later. Thank you. Bye.